and welcome to our podcast, A Chicken in Every Pot. Uh, this is our December recording and we're delighted to be here. I'll just kind of hand you over to my uh, fellow presenter after I introduce myself. I'm Clodagh Harrington and I work at University College Cork. Hello, hi Clodagh, thanks uh, for that. I'm, uh, yes, uh, I'm Alex, Alex Warden at the University of Leicester, uh, Associate Professor in Politics. Um, Clodagh, do you want to introduce our guest for today? Absolutely, thank you. Um, so today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Georg Loffelmann. He is Assistant Professor in US Foreign Policy at Queen Mary University in London. Uh, so welcome. I'm um, just going to say a, a couple of things about your um, your upcoming publication. And that sort of leads me quite nicely, actually, into our first question for you, Georg, so we can um, get your thoughts. So first and foremost, most importantly, a mention of your forthcoming monograph, which we will all be dashing out to buy in March 2024, as it's imminent. Uh, we're delighted to hear that. Um, so it's entitled The Politics of Antagonism, the Populist Security Narrative and the Remaking of Political Identity. OK, so that's going to be uh, in all good bookshops and available pre-order for pre-order from uh, late February. So welcome, Georg. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us. Um, and I guess in a way, my first question kind of comes from the, the title of your, your publication, if you like. So you, you talk about um, interlinking um, populism, security, etc. So could you just maybe talk us through that? What's that all about? And just give us a bit of context with the, in the American um, sense. That'd be great. Thank you. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much for, for the invitation. It's great to be here with uh, the two of you. Um, so the, the starting point of um, the book was essentially trying to combine the literature in populism and populism studies with approaches in critical security studies. So particularly since since Brexit and then the election of Trump as the 45th president of the United States, we, we had sort of this double whammy of populism in international politics, right? This idea that there is a disruption of the status quo, a disruption of a certain sense of continuity, political stability, especially in such established liberal democratic systems such as the US and uh, the UK. And, and ever since we've had a massive upsurge in academic interest in populism, particularly also in international relations, and then, of course, also also media attention. And um, at the same time, we have a decades-long populism literature, but that literature has predominantly looked at populism more in the domestic context. So voter mobilization, right? how do populists frame immigration, for example. But there wasn't really a lot on, for example, populism and foreign policy, or populism and the idea of national security. And one thing that I found quite peculiar is that what I saw in the populism literature is that they don't really talk about threat. Um, There's the idea of the threatening other, which of course is one of the foundational uh, concepts in critical security studies. But also when you look at populist rhetoric, it's, it's full of threats, right? The, the immigrant is predominantly framed as a terrorist and as a criminal in, in the rhetoric of Donald Trump, for example. Globalization is threatening um, the well-paying jobs of working-class Americans because uh, factories are relocated abroad to Mexico and Asia. International organizations are threatening because they are interfering with um, American sovereignty, national sovereignty. So 
what I basically wanted to do is uh, bring the security dimension into an analysis of nationalist populism. Um, and because I am a, a scholar focused on the US and US foreign security policy in particular, um, I wanted to look at the security dimension of populism under the Trump presidency. And the idea being essentially that populism not just separates society into these two antagonistic halves, the real people, the God-fearing, honest citizens by the heartland, and then there's the corrupt um, elite. Mm -hmm. But there's also that's something else that goes on here. And one of the arguments, or one of the key arguments in the books is that populism speaks to the sense of ontological security and ontological insecurity of this core constituency of a white working class, white non-college educated constituency, particularly living in the rural heartland in the South and in the Midwest of the United States. And it is really this constituency that Trump um, seeks to mobilize um, when he speaks on his campaign rallies, on Twitter, social media and all that. But also he legitimates his own America first agenda, his anti-immigration agenda, his protectionist agenda with this idea of protecting these people. So when he talks about America, he really doesn't really speak to or for all Americans, but he speaks to his own MAGA base. And this is where this idea comes in of the reframing of identity, because when Trump talks about American identity, he doesn't really talk about all 330 million Americans. He only talks about his Americans, and those sort of become the only yardstick um, for American democracy, um, for legitimacy. And that ultimately culminated at, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Capitol riot on Gen 6, right, when the real people their election victory had been stolen and Trump sort of sends his people, the real people, to take uh, their election victory back from the evil, corrupt Washington swamp that have, that have betrayed them. So that's it, uh, sort of, in a, in a nutshell, if you will. That's, that's really interesting, Georg. I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of really, you know, doing some reading about populism, but through that domestic lens rather than the, the international relations. So I was interested to hear it framed in terms of, international affairs rather than in terms of you know the the way in which it, it, it uh operates in, in domestic us or, or politics or elsewhere from what you're saying in the sense of speaking to a part of the public rather than the whole is that different then from a sort of revived form of nationalism i guess cause if I, I guess if you'd ask me how would i think of trumpism mm. In an international arena, it would have been a, a resurrection. I'm not sure if there's ever been a death of nationalism, um, but that it was, you know, nationalism on steroids. But I think you're saying something a little bit different from that. Is that right? Yeah, I think how I would define Trump is a is a nationalist populist. So, um, and the the book sort of follows a bit of a critical constructivist sort of post structuralist uh, inspired approach by saying. We're having sort of like two different signifiers that go on here. We have the nationalist signifier, which sort of demarcates the inside from the outside, the United States against uh, the, the threatening other, you know, ideas of American exceptionalism. This isn't something that's necessarily new. But then we also have the populist signifier, and there we have this um, division between the above and the below. So the real American people stand both against the elites above that have betrayed them and sold them out and 
um, uh, have humiliated the people, but then there's also the undeserving other below, ethnic minorities, immigrants in particular, below in quotation marks. And so um, you have this permanent antagonism with these dividing lines of what I think is basically like a neo-Schmittian idea of politics. Mm -hmm. Politics isn't about deliberation and competition. It is the friend versus the enemy in an existential struggle. And these enemies are both outside the nationalist part, vis-a-vis China, for example, but the enemies are also very much inside, right? Black Lives Matter activists, uh, unauthorized immigrants, the fake news media, um, the Democratic Party, all these are enemies to the true American people or the real American people in Trump's populist rhetoric. Okay, that's good. I think we're going to... We'll put a pin a little bit in Trump because we're going to come back to him, I think, in terms of what might happen next. Um, so that in, in a sense, there's a clear then divide between the way, and again, without getting into details, which we will in a moment, uh, but between, say, the, well, between the Obama administration, the Biden administration, mm. uh, in terms of their international outlook. So, that, I mean, even, even coming at it from a sort of critical studies perspective, you would draw a distinction in terms of where the US foreign policy is conducted between these those different figures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when you look at Obama, for example, and I did some work on, you know, Obama's grand strategy, there was still this rhetoric of American exceptionalism. America is the indispensable nation. We are, you know, um, sort of the bedrock of this liberal international order. But then at the same time, we are also no longer in this unipolar moment. We need partners to engage with, we need burden sharing, right? In Libya, it was called leading from behind because uh, the the Brits and, and the French were supposed to sort of take over the, mm-hmm. the mission there. And a lot of like Obama's philosophy was that we are the hegemon, but we need this cooperative engagement with our partners in Asia and Europe to uh, essentially manage international affairs, right? International politics, transnational problems economic governance after the fallout uh, from the financial crisis, even uh, global health issues like the Ebola outbreak, Mm. for example, piracy. I mean, Obama's idea was that the United States will always have to lead, but it needs others. And for Trump, it was, I think, a fundamentally different outlook in that even allies and partners of the US are a source of American weakness and decline because the Germans, the EU, uh, the Canadians, they have all ripped off the United States. Um, they've taken advantage of American security guarantees. And so this whole idea of cooperative engagement, cooperative partnership was sort of anathema to Trump. This is exactly uh, when he had a briefing in the Pentagon where Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson were saying the greatest gift of the greatest generation is the liberal international order. Trump said, this is exactly what I don't want. So there was just a fundamentally mm-hmm. different outlook what is sustaining American prosperity and security and influence in the in the world. Yes, Can I just dive good. in there? Just, a, just a, a, a quick side question from that, Georg. I'm just wondering, if we think of how, how Obama approached things, which is basically how you just very eloquently summed up, and, and then thinking about Trump and his kind of blaming and his othering mm. and his us and them and all the rest of it, was there a point, do you think, where some of those concerns were actually maybe a bit legitimate, that globalization wasn't all good and international organizations weren't always uh, operating with the best interests of, you know, let's say, middle America or whatever, um, elites 
can be corrupt, let's just say, you know, so that there was like yeah. some real legitimate issues there that others ignored. Like I'm sort of thinking of the Tea Party days because, you know, n not all the people who signed up to the Tea Party were kind of xenophobic yeah. racists, were they? They were just some, some anyway, at least were just concerned at, at the direction of travel of their country. And nobody listened or maybe nobody, nobody liberal listened. And then you get the Tea Party followed by Trump. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is the thing with, with populism. I think populism isn't sort of per se, you know, evil or or amoral. It is just like a way to frame uh, politics. Exactly. That the elites have essentially, you know, uh, monopolized uh, political power and that, for example, um, income distribution is increasingly uneven, right? The global, the global 1% and that you know, common people or ordinary citizens are, are losing out. And I mean, we're, we're having economic figures that show, for example, middle class uh, wages essentially stagnating for for decades. We know that since uh, the 1990s, I think six million manufacturing uh, jobs have been lost in the United States. So, so Trump tapped with his rhetoric into some genuine economic uh, grievances and, and concerns that people have. But where the populist element also comes in is that then he has very simple solutions how to go about these very complex transnational issues. So, for example, when we look at the decline of manufacturing jobs, this has also to do with automation, digitization, um, America sort of transforming into more of a service-based economy. Mm -hmm. But in Trump's narrative, this was all evil foreigners. Uh, it was bad Chinese and bad Germans and the bad EU, and it was their fault. And when we bring back tariffs and we when we slap a bunch of tariffs on steel and aluminum, all these manufacturing jobs are coming back. And uh, so, while the I think while the economic argument, you know, there is real data behind it and real concerns behind it, the solutions were inadequate essentially, or the popular solutions were inadequate to to remedy these these, these developments. Yeah, right. Well, we don't want to get bogged down in China policy, but um, <laughs> but, it, but in a sense, the, world, the, the optimism of the nineties in a sense, you know, the, almost the Fukuyama argument, and you know, the the the, the Clinton administration, and um, yeah, you know, the capitalism liberalisation would produce political yep. change, um, and that at least so far hasn't happened in the Chinese case, and probably the, the outsourcing of lots more jobs in the American economy yep. than anybody actually predicted back in the nineties, I think. And this is also very much, you know, a polarizing issue. I think uh, before the 2016 election, there were about 60% of Clinton voters who were for free trade and 60% of Republican voters of Trump voters were against free trade because they saw it predominantly as a source of outsourcing. So you have this polarization element, but then there is also a gap between average American public opinion and elite opinion. So you're having regular polls by the Chicago Global um, Council on Global Affairs, where about you know 70 plus percent of Americans, or around 70 percent, are roughly in favor of global engagement. Um, but then you have, for example, you know the Council on Foreign Relations, where almost 99 percent of members, when polls say free trade is good, even if it means outsources and factories relocating, for example, or broadly in support of military intervention. So there is a massive gap, uh, essentially, between average American public opinion and elite opinion, where attitudes that were more 
restraint toward military engagements or maybe even also to free trade, those were not reflected at all on the elite level. And Trump gave a voice to these people mm -hmm. that did not show up in Washington think tanks and at, you know, conferences, and you wouldn't find them in the pages of the New York Times or the Washington Post. And I think this is also why partially Trump is successful, that he voiced something that nobody else would, would essentially voice. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, yeah, I mean, I was going to talk about Bernie Sanders, but let's move on. Rather than, <laughs> they're stuck in uh, rerun in 2016. Um, I, I, actually, just in terms of, uh, just to jump forward a little bit to, to contemporary uh, conflicts um and i mean in the sense that the ukraine conflict now has been how far in are we now getting on nearly two years i guess years. Uh, since the russian invasion um i think just what we've been talking about trump and, and giving voice to people i mean we, we can talk about the the, the the wider situation with the war in, in, a, in a moment or two but i guess it's a cotton horse here trump's I mean, there does seem to be growing Republican opposition. We saw yesterday, we're, yeah. we're just saying we're taping on Friday the 8th, so it's yesterday in Washington will be Thursday. Um, with the blocking of the of a, um, of a aid bill. Um, and it's, I mean, just as you see things, is, is Trump leading the Republican Party now in a, into a sort of more hostile, hostile's not quite the right word, but a more skeptical view over Ukraine that can have real material consequences? Yeah, I, w I would say that's true. I mean, I think America first and national populism did not end with you know Trump leaving the White House. Uh, he still exerts massive influence. I would say he's the dominant influence over the Republican Party. About half of Republican voters are essentially in, in the Trump camp as nationalist populist voters, as uh, evangelical nationalist uh, voters. Um, Ron DeSantis uh, said um, in an interview before he backtracked is that this is like a territorial issue between Russia and Ukraine. Basically, the United States doesn't have a dog in this fight. We should focus uh, on China. He had to then walk it back after protest by Marco Rubio and um, by Mitch McConnell. But um, we are seeing a growing sentiment. I think in October 2022, there was um, or in May 2022, sorry, there were already 57 Republicans in the House that voted against additional appropriations for Ukraine, 11 out of 50 GOP uh, senators. And I think this, this momentum of being more and more critical toward continued um, support for Ukraine shows this enduring influence of America first, or even dominance of America first, and somebody who is seen as sort of a quintessential establishment figure like Mitch McConnell seems to be increasingly losing uh, influence. I think there was a quote by Steve Bannon, which is in the book, where uh, Bannon says that um, this is the new Republican Party was the neocons that are still there. We don't have any interest. No one in the Trump movement has any interest at all in the Russian-speaking provinces of Eastern Ukraine, zero. And I think this, this shows you the, the mindset of Trump and of Trump's movement or the Trumpian wing of the Republican, of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this, we can put a pin in Trump um, in terms of what might happen if he's re-elected. Mm. Uh, or, or, um, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I was going to make a couple about Nikki Haley, but we'll let that go for the moment. Um, 
Um, but just in terms of the Biden administration's policy towards Ukraine, and um, how coherent do you think that's been? I mean, I, it seems to me that Biden's been all in, so to speak. Um, yeah. But it, all in in a sort of staggered sense. And what I mean by that is the commitments have grown over time in terms of what the US and also the Europeans obviously are prepared to do in terms of moving from simply financial aid to, uh, you know, hard military hardware, I guess. Um, yeah. Do you think you would have made it, was, was it, would it have been possible for the Americans and the Europeans to jump to military hardware quicker than they did? Or is, is the sort of gradualist approach been an effective one in terms of channeling aid to Ukraine? I mean, I think this is also like partially like a, a generational issue, right? I mean, like when we think about, you know, Biden's age and somebody who was really also like socialized in, in the Cold War uh, context, like somebody who actually like remembers, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis as, as a young man, I think there is a great sense of trepidation to not go too far and potentially trigger some form of more uh, for a Russian escalation, potentially even like a nuclear um, escalation. And these are very much concerns that I've shared in, in Germany, for example, my home country by, by Olaf Scholz, who is younger, but who was also sort of socialized in the 1980s anti-nuclear uh, war movement. So I think this, this fear of Russian nuclear or potential nuclear retaliation is something that is taken very serious. And so you see that um, it, it, everything moves very gradually, right? First, you send light anti-tank weaponry like javelins and light um, surface-to-air missiles like Stinger and Panzerfaust three. Then you send infantry fighting vehicles like Bradley and Martyr, and then you send marine battle tanks like Leopard and um, and uh, Abrams. And so, with every Step, you send, oh, we can go like a little bit further. But even now, right, so the US has sent attackums. Is that how you pronounce those attackums? I don't know. But you say these like, you know, um, um, uh, missiles, but you don't give them the, the furthest range version. And uh, the Germans are not sending the Taurus cruise missile, which has a range of 500 kilometers. Um, so maybe this will also fall uh, eventually. But um, it is a very step-by-step um, -step gradual approach. So on the one side, I think strategically it is explainable, but operationally and militarily, it means, of course, that the Ukrainians are weakened because they get relatively low numbers of things and then only very, very piecemeal. And I think this is also one of the reasons that we take so long to send things in relatively slow numbers while their counteroffensive in the summer hasn't really been this this massive success or they've been able to achieve a massive massive breakthrough because we are we have a sort of very measured we have like one foot on the gas pedal but at the same time we also have sort of like one hand on the brake as well i think in in this war and i suppose vladimir putin's very mindful of that yeah yeah i mean it's I like think... there's a kind of a waiting game it feels more and more like like a waiting game now especially as november 2024 is you know ever, yeah. ever nearer and and the, the war seems to have gone into kind of winter mode which seems to be you know like a a, a, a whole other phase it's gone off the the front yeah. pages it's it's no longer above the fold because there are other horrors that now sit above the fold as we're all very aware and i'm just really mindful that the public the public forgets and, and and you know the public is inundated with with other matters and and uh, you know understandably so but it's just that out of sight, out of mind yeah. 
concern. And I think I think Biden is aware, isn't he, that, you know, that the kind of potential for, for Putin pick, picking up, you know, getting the wind behind him in this situation is is is, is ever more of a, a threat. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, things with, uh, you know, scaling up industrial production of things like ammunition, for example. I think I read something where North Korea is now the largest supplier of ammunition for the Russians and South Korea is the largest supplier of ammunition for Ukraine because neither the Americans nor the Europeans have actually been able to scale up their their production um, and essentially sort of shift their industry and sort of like a war wartime footing, which is, of course, something nobody in the West had to do for for decades, uh, essentially. So it also shows how, how unprepared we are on an industrial level, on a political level, also on a military level to not deal with, you know, counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, which was the dominant form of conflict for the last 20, 30 years or peacekeeping in the Balkans, but industrial scale interstate warfare, which hasn't really happened since since the Korean War, essentially, or for in the Israeli context in the Yom Kippur War of, in the 1970s. Yeah, Boris Johnson did say once, didn't he, the idea of, of tank warfare in, in Europe was, was long gone. Um, and uh, he was wrong on that as many other things. Um, but on that point, actually, is it, um, actually David Cameron was in Washington. Um, is, did, in terms of trying to influence, uh, I'm just speculating here, but um, could pressure from a, a conservative British government um, have any influence on conservative Republicans to maintain a more internationalist approach? On, I, I guess what will be the Nikki Haley wing of the party to give them a bit more voice? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Europeans in general have, you know, very moderate uh, influence. And, and even with Brexit, I would put the British government here in the in the European in the European camp. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, for example, trade policy, right? Um, everybody thought, oh, you know, post-Brexit, we're going to have this like transatlantic trade deal because of the special relationship. And then basically Joe Biden was like, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, the last thing in my mind is I want to uh, negotiate a free trade agreement, neither between the EU and the US, or, nor between the UK and the US. And I think we just need to assess that, you know, strategically where it's at for the United States is in the Asia Pacific, is in the Indo-Pacific, is, is vis-a-vis China. I mean, even the challenge of, of, of Russia in Ukraine is, I think, ultimately secondary to the United States, to what will unfold in the, in the Indo-Pacific, the issue of Taiwan, checking the growth of uh, Chinese economic and military power. And this is also where I think, you know, going forward, the Europeans will need to get used to putting much, much more on the table in terms of providing for their own defense and in terms of a support for Ukraine, if they want to have any influence in Washington at all. Because, I mean, I think uh, that's not speculative, but should Trump get reelected in 2024, he doesn't even need to formally leave NATO in order to gut NATO, right? He could just basically unilaterally decide he's going to like move the troops out of Germany and, you know, uh, bring him home, or he will say something, uh, give a public statement that says, you know, this is not our, this is not our dog. I mean, NATO is basically built on trust, and if you have somebody who is inherently untrustworthy, he can just completely undermine his entire alliance without even formally dissolving it. So this is where I think the, if the Europeans want want to have influence, they need to be much more serious about defense and security in, in particular. And I think there's a bit of a wake up going on with Zeitman in Germany, I think, you know, uh, but also like under Rishi Sunak, I don't have the sense that, you know, Britain 
really for all the talk of global Britain that uh, foreign and security policy is a particular strategic priority for, for Rishi Sunak or, you know, to punch above his weight. Yeah, I think the British government is just trying to lift hands and mouth from one another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, could I just ask a, a quick question? I, I think the 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 the, the Russia Ukraine war has been interesting, very interesting to observe, just from a, a kind of a Ger- German foreign security defence policy kind of perspective. Has it has it changed? I mean, I'm just asking this. Maybe you're you're just more as 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 a German. You know, it has have you noted? Uh, some kind of meaningful shift there because it seems to have happened or be happening. Yeah, so uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Miles Riemann and I, we did actually a little like um, edited volume, a German language one on this idea of Zeitenwende, right, this turnaround. So because Olaf Scholz in the German parliament three days after the Russian invasion, um, he, on on the 27th of February, he said, that this is um, a historic shift, a historic turnaround, and Germany needs to completely remodel, essentially, its foreign security and defense policies to so get away from dependency on Russian natural gas, for example, a hundred billion investment in the Bundeswehr, the German armed forces, um, was announced, uh, substantial weapon shipments for Ukraine were announced, and these were quite seismic shifts because ever since reunification, Germany is strategic posture was basically we almost don't need armed forces anymore we are completely surrounded by friends and partners and the only military mission we engage in is sort of like some peacekeeping like in the Balkans or we're sending a a limited contingent to Afghanistan but that would basically do out of solidarity with the United States um, of America less sort of for genuine German strategic uh, interests the German didn't feel threatened and I would argue that this this has changed now. I think there is a much greater appreciation for security topics, for national security, also in the media and the public debate, um, a topic that basically hasn't played any role on the political or the media or the societal levels. Also, when you compare, for example, prevalent security studies as an academic subject in the UK uh, versus in Germany, where it's essentially like a niche, like a handful mm-hmm. of universities study the subject. So there is something, I think, of a shift that is beginning, but at the same time, we're still dealing with the same partially dysfunctional bureaucratic structures in Germany's procurement process of the armed forces. Germany doesn't have a national security council still. Um, So we elect this sort of like central body for planning and coordinating security policy across government, the foreign ministry, the defense ministry, the chancellery, all sort of... Uh, pursue their own individual um, policies also isn't helping. You have coalition governments, so you have Alina Baerbock from the Green heading the foreign ministry, but the SPD, the German Labour Party, is in charge of the defence ministry and the Chancellery, and then the FDP, the business liberals, they are in charge of the finance ministry, uh, and the German defence budget is essentially flatlining. So on the one side, you have sort of like narratively, discursively, rhetorically indicators of change, but then materially, structurally, bureaucratically, a lot of sort of status quo and a, and a certain reluctance to change. Because, I mean, Germany's world was perfect, right? We no longer had a credible military threat as we had to throughout the Cold War. We are selling our cars and our washing machines and our whatnot to the Chinese. We're having cheap gas from Russia and the Americans protect us. And this sort of really cozy uh, post-Cold War German world has sort of uh, now crumbled. And 
it also has, I think, shattered certain German illusions, delusions about how national politics works, right? Oh, everything is, can be resolved with diplomacy and economic engagement. And now we see in the Russia-Ukraine war, we see uh, in the Middle East that actually at some points, uh, diplomacy and economic engagement will get you only so far when you are dealing with authoritarian powers that are willing to revise the status quo by force in order to achieve their territorial or neo-imperial uh, ambitions. So that was very uncomfortable, or is still very uncomfortable, I think, for Germany, who took on more of a pacifist uh, identity, or at least not non-military identity. Yeah. Just, oh, thank you. Okay. I mean, I don't know if Claude has got the, the tweet or the post, or whatever we call it these days, to hand, but we did get a question on Twitter from someone who was asking, I mean, and this, I'm guessing, this, I don't know, just thinking in the short term, given what you've just said about the, um, the you know, the, you know, if you still think of Germany as being the major European economic power, um, in terms of being able to respond quickly to what's happening in Ukraine. So the, this is a the, the, the question is assuming Trump wins, um, and you know we're still, if that's true, then it's still 15 months till we get a Trump administration. Mm. Um, so who knows what the state of affairs will be in terms of on the ground in Ukraine at that point. Um, but and then there is a withdrawal of you know a, a, a serious pulling back of American aid. Um, can I think the question was actually focused on the Anglosphere in terms of you know the UK and Australia and Canada, but maybe we don't need to focus on the Anglosphere quite as much as that. In the short term, would, would the, could the Europeans and you know with with or maybe Australia fill the gap, or would that be? as calamitous for the Ukraine as, as Zelensky certainly seems to be suggesting. I, I think in the short term, the Europeans are completely un, unable to fill to fill this gap. Um, they don't have the industrial capacities and they also don't have the, the structures, uh, the political structures for, I think, quick crisis um, a reaction when we think about, you know, 27 member states having to like uh, uh, agree on a policy. Uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, he's openly hostile, for example, to, to Ukraine joining the EU. Um, I think for the foreseeable future, when it comes to European security, NATO is the only game in town, and NATO is the United States. I mean, 75%, I think, of, of military assets, of strategic assets of, of NATO are provided by the United States, especially when we think about things like reconnaissance, right, refueling, um, satellites. I mean, some of the stuff the, the Europeans don't have at all, or in very only small uh, doses. So I think... Um, from the European powers, only France and Britain um, have sort of limited expeditionary warfare capabilities, right? So, for example, or, or nuclear weapons. So, um, I, I think Europe, for all how much we discuss the potential return of Trump, I think Europe strategically is completely unprepared for an eventual uh, folding in or, or folding up of the of the American security um, umbrella, and it would be such a um, seismic shock that um, it would basically mean a completely new geopolitical epoch, essentially, so for, for Europe. Yeah, in a way, just, sorry, Claire, I did just want to quickly, because sort of one of the things you said early on in terms of thinking about the Obama administration and their approach mm. and the Trump administration was the sort of odd, the, the sort of contradictory dynamics. So you've got the Obama administration, which still wants the US to play it in, you know, be an interventionist mm. force in international affairs, but also is sort of thinking we need partners. We, you know, the US is not yeah. the unilateral, you know, it's not 
1993 anymore. Um, and the Trump administration, which sort of says, well, you know, we're still the dominant superpower, but we don't want to be involved. Yeah. Okay, which is sort of slightly different, you know, well, more than slightly different messages, but different in different ways, if that makes sense. Um, and just another thing, I, I, I don't want to take us off into too generalist a direction, but and, and please, if I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, then really do correct me. But I do, do think of two things, two commentators I've sort of been listening to and reading about recently. So you're, I don't know if you've read any, I know I've read these, but say Samuel Moyne, I think, has, has written recently about, and he takes a quite a critical view of the, US, the way that the, the yeah. role that the United States has played in international affairs, so it's sort of failed. And, and then there's, I don't know if you know Noah Smith, who's a sort of economist who sort of tweets a lot. And, um, uh, and his argument is that, you know, the U.S. is, you know, the U.S. power is declining and, and you're going to miss it. Yeah. Um, do, uh, do, would you give more legitimacy to either of those perspectives? Um, either in terms of whether the U.S. power is declining and two, will we miss it, do you think? Yeah, I, I always discuss this with my students, right? Yeah. The United States and decline and what kind of what kind of decline. I mean, uh, what I would say, it, it is in relative decline, right? I mean, when we look to the 1990s, I think the United States unilaterally uh, spent more on defense than the rest of the world uh, combined, essentially. That has now shrunk to, I think, the United States accounts for 38 or 40 percent of, of global military expenditure. So it is not so much the United States is becoming weaker per se, but others are becoming more powerful. So China as military capabilities have obviously grown, you know, quite exponentially when we think about the growth of the Chinese Navy, Chinese uh, rocket forces. Um, Russia is no longer the, uh, you know, bankrupt, decaying uh, post-Soviet state. Um, Putin has very heavily invested in the modernization of, of his armed forces, even though they have underperformed in Ukraine. So in, in that sense, I think we are dealing with, with American decline, but I think what we're dealing even with, with more is Europe, Europe's decline. Europe's decline as a global share of, of uh, GDP, um, Europe's military forces. I mean, the German army or the West German army was 500,000 uh, soldiers. Now they are struggling to maintain a level of 180,000 soldiers. They once had 2,000 uh, Leopard tanks. Now I think they're having like something like around 300. So there is a massive... Uh, decline in Europe's sort of collective military military power, and I think with that, and also their global economic share, and with that also European European influence. So, um, and but this is also a problem for the United States because you know for all their qualms and uh, difficulties with the Europeans, their go-to partner is usually is usually Europe, right? So there is sort of um, there is a mutual dependency here. But I also always think there is also something schizophrenic here because the Europeans always talk about, oh, we want to have strategic European autonomy, like Macron, for example. And then the Americans are saying, oh, we want the European pillar in NATO. But then Madden Albright also said in the 90s, when it comes to Europe and NATO, we want the three Ds. No duplication, no decoupling. Um, I always forget this. Third. No discrimination, right? No discrimination against non-NATO members in the EU. So the Americans want Europe to be more capable, but also not so capable that they are sort of their own independent competing uh, um, power pole. And the Europeans always talk a good game, but uh, don't invest essentially in their in their strategic uh, autonomy. And then are quite happy ultimately to remain with with uh, these uh, under the American protective uh, umbrella. And this. 
um, I think is something where Trump has again successfully tapped into by saying, well, why should we provide for the defense for these, uh, you know, very wealthy European states and the general welfare systems? Um, you know, and this is something where, you know, a voter in, in, uh, in rural Ohio is, yeah, why? actually and then the europeans can't even like you know spend on their own defense and this is where i think europeans have a massive legitimacy problem and not just with trump by the way obama already criticized this and robert gates did uh, would criticize this hmm. and they're they're legitimate criticisms uh, absolutely yeah. they have yeah, they have a point sure. this, is, this is a perf absolutely legitimate point but of yeah. course trump wants to blow up the entire nato nato alliance right with this point but yeah, the, the Europeans. Uh, I think this this problem of free riding is 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 a massive problem, and the Europeans still, I don't think, are doing are doing enough yet to counteract these American concerns. I'm just trying trying to think of 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 anything uh, positive at all in relation to Ukraine because it it's it's kind of not it's not looking good for their outlook right this moment and I, I truly hope for them that you know that, that that changes I wonder like just think about the medium term maybe and and sort of possibly you know let's say they come out the other end of this war at some point can they can they look to being you know maybe part of the EU and and you know getting in there a, a bit faster maybe than advertised or whatever I mean they seem so sort of dynamic and able to adapt yeah. to change in crisis very quickly i know they're on the back foot at the moment but just being able to do things like maybe you know to kind of attract investment and and, and make themselves you know a, a, an attractive entity for the region yeah. and for the eu is is that something that you could see happening i mean i mean i'm i'm, I'm not an uh, expert on on ukraine so i will defer to, to some uh, people with more expertise here but from what i would say is that to me, it seems that this process of westernization, of liberalization, of democratization of Ukraine is one that is irreversible when we see this societal cohesion in standing up to Russian aggression, right? In, in not wanting to be pulled back into some Russian imperial, imperial space. And um, I think eventually there will be a Ukraine that is part of the European Union. I think eventually there will be a Ukraine that is part uh, that is part of of NATO. The exact, you know, territorial shape I think of this uh, of this Ukraine just will be uh, dependent on the outcome of, of this war. But I think Ukraine will survive as an independent nation state and I think ultimately it will take its place in sort of the Western community of states and and uh, the European community of states. So okay. that that's a little bit of like a positive uh, it is. Yeah. That's great. I, I think I think we, 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 we need to we need to hear that. It's 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 good to know that there is some kind of positive potential, e even if it's you know not going to happen just yet. Um, I'm mindful that we're, we're we're coming to the end of our our, our time. Uh, oh, there's so much that we didn't even get to. I knew this would happen. Um, I wonder if if we could just put our final question to you, Georg, that we always ask our um, guests, which is in terms of your own reading listening viewing whatever recommendations and anything to share with us yes so um i i was coming uh, myself uh, quite new to the uh, subject of populism um actually so somebody who wants really like a very brief but i think very informative and a very well written introduction i can recommend uh, what is populism by jan werner muller uh, which uh, is in the penguin um by Penguin, something that is a bit more uh, in-depth, a bit more, uh, 
detail from a political science analysis is cultural backlash, Trump Brexit and authoritarian populism by Pippa Norris and Ronald Engelhardt. For those that are maybe interested a bit more sort of an uh, ethnographic um, study, sociological study perspective of Trump voters, um, Ali Russell Hochschild, Strangers mm -hmm. in Their Own Land, where she spent a year in uh, rural Louisiana, and it gives like a very good understanding of also some of like the yeah the emotional space that a lot of these um, voters um, their experience in terms of anger, in terms of economic pessimism, in terms of this feeling that their country, their own country, is just like slipping away from them, and they're no longer being. Um, validated and cherished. And finally, um, the uh, series by Bob Woodward, the uh, Washington Post journalist, I think the first two are called Rage and Fear, and the final one, which deals with the uh, 2020 presidential election, uh, January 6th, and its aftermath, which is actually co-written by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, uh, Peril, which uh, I think was quite excellent. And it also shows you how powerless this moment really was in terms of the integrity of the American Republic, but also when you have an episode where Nancy Pelosi calls um, the chairman of the Joint uh, Chief, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Macmillan and uh, Macmillan, and he says to him, "You know he's crazy, right? So if he basically gives the order to launch a nuke, I hope you will have you know something in place uh to stop him and then emily responds yeah we know he's crazy so uh it uh, makes a little bit for uh, sweaty sweaty palms when you read it but uh, <laughs> it, it, it is uh it is very informative and uh, yeah. stranger than fiction mm -hmm. well yeah uh, trump of course has suggested that he should be executed um uh yes. in, in the recent weeks so um there you go from a, um just quite astonishing I mean, I, I just a word for our listeners, you, you may wonder why we've not talked about the uh, situation in the Middle East. We did actually, before we started taping, uh, talk about how we were going to talk about this, and we fully intended to do so. Um, but we've just uh, we've not had time, and I don't think we want to cram it into five minutes now. So uh, yeah. I, I, That's I, another podcast, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. I, I, that's just, I could have could have happily gone on for another hour talking about <laughs> all this stuff. Um, but, uh, so uh, just, George, if we could you know, get you back maybe quite quickly to, to to talk about that that would be great because uh, clearly it's it's a uh, it's contentious and the issues around them you know it's really interesting to think about from a u.s perspective and how much leverage the u.s has got in terms of what the Biden administration is trying to do publicly and what it might be trying to do behind the scenes uh, and then and how it impacts ukraine as well yeah yeah it's, yeah. it's okay okay Absolutely. thank you so much that was that was just wonderful thank you much much appreciated and yeah we we'll look forward to having you back. Thank you, boys. Yes. We really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you.